Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. I am very, very happy to have on today Dr. Yasir Qadi. Uh, salam, doctor. How are you? Salam alaikum. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, very happy to have you on on this very, very important topic for me. I think normally I, I haven't really given a background about myself, but I think it's important in this situation to give a bit of a background about myself. So yes, please. Understand. I haven't met you yet. So this is the first time we're actually interacting. I've just heard a little bit about you. So I need to hear from you. Exactly. Uh, also, apologize for a very blunt question, but I've never um, it's my own fault. I've never heard of your podcast. So I need to know more about your podcast as well. And a little bit about you, so if you don't mind, inshallah. Let me begin the interview by interviewing you, and then it's all yours. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, my name is Ashram Masood. I am a first-year PhD student at Yale University in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. My focus is late antiquity, early Islam, Quranic studies, and Semitic philology. Before that, I was at the University of Chicago, where I did a master's in Middle Eastern studies. I worked with Fred Donner. And... Before that, I did a master's in biological sciences at NYU. And then before that, I, I was an undergrad at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Uh, I started this podcast last year because I noticed that there has not been uh, a strong attempt made by a number of white people who could do this, but they, for whatever reason, have not to kind of bridge these two different worlds when it comes to Islamic studies and learning. So the general goal of the podcast, the name is Bottled Petrichor Podcast. And what I do is that I, I interview individuals on any given topic, but I try to get different in a different guest to talk about that given topic. So, for example, I'll have a topic on hadith and I'll have an, a, a scholar, Mufti Muntasir Zaman, who's really an expert in hadith and um, someone who studied traditionally. And he also studied, I guess, also in university, but most of the learning. I'm really proud of him, mashallah. He's a budding scholar. He has a bright future, inshallah, ahead of him. And I, I want more people to know his name, Muntasir Zaman. Most more people should know his name, alhamdulillah. Go on. Absolutely. And then I would like to compare whatever he says uh, with regard to hadith with another scholar who might be coming from a different background. This way, listeners kind of get, you know, a different perspective, multiple views, and hopefully they can kind of appreciate um, the diversity of opinions that are available. That's pretty much the goal of the podcast. And other than that, right now I'm, uh, you know, I have a son, I have a wife. Uh, we live in New Haven, and uh, that's pretty much what's important about me. Alhamdulillah. So you're doing, you're starting your PhD at Yale, uh, but you're in the Nelk department. And uh, for our viewers, uh, most of them don't know the difference between Nelk and Islamic studies. And frankly, sometimes we ourselves have difficulty explaining the differences between Nelk and Islamic studies. Let's just say there's some overlap, and then there's also some areas of, of emphases that are different. Uh, obviously, Islamic studies does emphasize uh, the anthropological, religious, you know, cultural aspects of the religion and the faith. Near Eastern studies, it is said it emphasizes more on the language and philo philology more. But I mean, to be honest, nobody can. A lot of people also have the stereotype that Nelk is something of the remnants of the old school and religious studies is of the new school in academia. I know that's a harsh stereotype, but that's something that is also floating around in the air. Also, many universities don't have two departments, NELC and Islamic Studies. Yale is one of the few that actually has both. And there is a lot of overlap. When I was at Yale, 
clearly, I don't want to go into too much detail. Those who know, know there was a marked difference between NELC and Islamic studies in terms of professors and in terms of uh, students. Yet, we would be taking each other's classes. I took classes at NELC, and NELC would always be in our classes as well. But I think it was patently clear to anybody at that time, this was obviously 15 years ago, uh, I don't know about now, is that that market difference or even, dare I say, some whiff of tension even between the two? I don't know, asking all these questions, is that still around or is it now gone? It's 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 much less. I've heard some rumors about this stuff before, but now, right now we're like brothers and sisters pretty much. Um, a lot of the students in the NELC department take classes with professors in the religious studies and, you know, uh, religious studies students take uh, classes with NELC department professors, um, we work together a lot. So I think that that tension is a bit less now. I can't speak for the way it was before I came, but this is definitely how it is now. Okay, obviously the big names in NELC are no longer at Yale, and that makes a big difference. Also, you have new new people in Islamic studies, so things have changed at that. But anyway, nice to have you. And by the way, your name is really exotic. Um, what is the name of your podcast again, you said? Bottled Petrichor Podcast. So a lot of people have no clue what petrichor is. Petrichor isn't that the smell from the dew, right? Uh, yeah, something like that. I guess when 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 rain falls exactly. on dry earth, that that, that smells. Yes. It's a very so, good smell. I mean, I like it a lot. So bottle petrichor. Very. I like. I really like that title. Okay, it does the earthy smell after rain. That's what petrichor is. So, uh, okay, Marshall, good. Bismillah. The floor is yours. Okay. Sheikh, I, I just wanted to get some, I guess, introductory questions out of the way. You grew up in Houston. You were born in Houston. You grew up in Houston. You spent some time abroad. You are the, the son of immigrant parents. I think your daughter is a physician. Your mom's also in the sciences. So I wonder, what was it like kind of growing up in this, I'd say maybe the first generation of American Muslims without, you know, what we have right now? What was that like? And then how did you shift from being an engineer a chemical engineer who worked for Dow into, uh, you know, <laughs> who you are right now, someone who pursued Islamic studies at the Islamic University of Medina. Yeah, so um, my, my father was one of the first immigrants that came uh, from Pakistan to America back in 62, 63, way before most people started coming. He did his master's and then PhD um, uh, in biology. He's a professor. He's, he taught at medical school, but he never became an MD. He's teaching at the medical department. Um, my mother also has a, a master's in microbiology, and she worked um, as a microbiologist. Um, so um, I grew up between uh, Houston and also Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, because my father was a professor at King of the Disease University uh, in the medical school. <coughs> that's not COVID, by the way. That's my cough. <laughs> we have to excuse ourselves when we cough these days. Explaining, <laughs> inshallah, it's not COVID. Um, so I grew up between the two worlds, but even in Jeddah, I was in a very um, elite expatriate bubble of Westerners. I had never spoke Arabic. I, those people who know, know. Back in the 80s, if you got a job as an American or British, you lived in your own place, you went to your own private schools, and it was a very different experience um, growing up in that. And I'm very happy that Allah blessed me with that. But I was more Western than Eastern, even in Jeddah. Um, and... It was an interesting experience. Obviously, we'd come back here pretty much every year, spend three months or you know two and a half months in the summer, and uh, you know we would stay here, go back, and we were connected with um, you know America throughout growing up, uh, my my youth. Um, so that was a very interesting experience for me. I my father and and, and mother, uh, alhamdulillah, they they still are. They're still alive. Alhamdulillah, they're very religious from the very beginning. But they became religious coming to America. Like America, as you know, it has this impact on people. Like we need to become more religious. And so they, they turned to 
you know, uh, religiosity. And my father was one of the first who, who um, founded the mosque uh, the, of Islamic State of Greater Houston, ISGH, uh, which is the first mosque in Houston. Uh, and it is now the largest conglomerate of mosques all across America. Uh, over 25 mosques are under ISGH. So I'm very proud that, you know, he's he has done quite a lot, uh, um, you know, when he came here. So growing up, I remember vividly, vividly going for Jumu'ah and not understanding a single word. I remember going to Sunday school and making fun of the teachers, even as a five-year-old, because they couldn't speak English, right? The standard thing. So, you know, this is 1979, 1980. You know, that's the memories I have of our mosques and, and you know, uh, and just... A feeling of Islam being okay. You dress up nice, you go for Eid, but there's no obviously understanding of what's going on. And I do remember very clearly, like not understanding my faith tradition. Going to Saudi Arabia, actually, believe it or not, a lot of people don't understand this. That religiosity is not something that happens in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> on the contrary, you live in elitist camps and bubbles, and people are not overtly religious in those bubbles. Fact, frankly, it looks down, it's looked down upon. And uh, my father went to Saudi Arabia in order to be more religious environment for his family, you know, in order to give us a more religious environment. And no doubt you, you can't help but be a part of that culture, i.e. I grew up and there was no access to drugs, you know, there was no access to alcohol. And that's a big deal, obviously, as a teenager that you don't have that access, you know. It's not even possible, even if we wanted to back in the 80s, we couldn't do that. But we did have other vices that other kids of the 80s had. That's, it's, you know, you can't be totally protected. Um, alhamdulillah, came back to America, uh, you know, finished up my, you know, engineering degree. And of course, in university, you're totally independent. Nobody can tell you what to do. And it was during my engineering degree that um, I decided that I really don't want to, to, to pursue a lifelong career in engineering. And um, I decided at that phase, I think I was around 17, that I really said, you know what, I want to be religious. It's not something that is being pushed on me. I like being religious. It gave meaning to my life. It really gave me meaning. But then I had this huge emptiness of I don't understand anything. I don't, you know, I don't know my faith. And remember, this is 1992-93 era. Very little is in English. Very, very There were no what we call bona fide ulama who speak English as a first language. That just didn't exist. The people I knew were Siraj Wahaj and Jamal. By the way, may Allah bless them. They have done an immense amount of work. We owe them so much. But obviously, they're not bona fide trained ulama. They are preachers and teachers. And I met a few people in the Salafi movement uh, who truly mesmerized me because they seem to be aware of the texts firsthand. They could quote Quran and Hadith from the top of their minds that I, like I've never seen before. And they, they knew how to link anything to an actual evidence. And that's very impressive. As a, One of the main things of the Salafi movement, I'm sure we're going to get to this, is the fact that it does link ritual to tradition. It links ritual to classical textbooks. It, it links lived daily experiences to scholars a thousand years ago. And it's very, very mesmerizing. And so along with this spiritual epiphany, I meet these people in the Salafi movement and I'm like, this is just, I can't live my life without learning more about my faith. And I, you know, decided to then give up my career in engineering. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, I graduated. Alhamdulillah, I worked at Dow Chemical so that I had a little bit of experience and I, I knew what I'm giving up. And I thank Allah for that. Well, it's such a blessing from Allah that I actually have a degree in engineering because I wanted to leave in the middle of the degree. But 
but my father was like, no way, <laughs> you are our responsibility. This is what you call elderly wisdom that you don't understand at the time. He's like, you're our responsibility. And if you want to choose something else in life, my job is to make sure that you're situated enough to make that choice. Not at this stage. You have to establish yourself, get your degree. Then if you decide to go somewhere else, I can't really do anything. But until you get your degree, I'm responsible to make sure that you get to that stage. Right. And at the time I was very angry, but Alhamdulillah in hindsight, Alhamdulillah, it was such a blessing from Allah. I actually worked at Dow Chemical. I got experience on the ground. I wrote a 3000 line code for uh, in Fortran about uh, uh, polymer um, uh, synthesis in the lab. So I, I still remember bits of it here and there, the concepts, what I needed to do. And I realized I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And I applied to University of Medina, which at the time was unknown. A lot of people, again, don't understand 1993, 94. Nobody had heard of the Islamic University of Medina. Frankly, it's the first batch of graduates that are now making it well known uh, uh, these days. Otherwise, it was unknown in the early 90s. There was not a single American graduate that was active in America, you know, in the early 90s. Nobody had heard of this university. There were some American graduates that were still living in the Middle East and, you know, doing whatever they were doing. But they were unknown in this part of the world. And I knew about it because of my closed Salafi circles, obviously, because that was aggrandized. And so um, I decided to apply. And alhamdulillah, one thing led to another. And here I am. And I think I answered your question way more than what you asked. <laughs> Does that answer your question? I mean, absolutely. But you started the PhD program at Yale in what year? I applied uh, 2004 when I was still in Medina, the last year of my Medina master's degree. The Medina master's was five years those days, by the way, it was a different, I got the old system and I thank Allah for that. Five years of the MA and then the PhD technically is five to seven years as well in, in Medina. Um, and I, I decided after 9-11, 9-11 was a very eye opener for me. People say it changed their lives, it definitely changed my life, even though I was in Medina when it happened. Um, because before 9-11, I had always dreamed of doing my PhD from Medina. And at the time, there had not been a single Westerner, forget American, single Westerner that had ever finished any PhD program from any of the departments. And I was slotted to be the first, uh, not just American, but Westerner. Nobody had ever got to that stage because it was so difficult to even get in. Uh, hardly, I think before me, if I'm not mistaken, one person or two maybe has a master's. Uh, and it's 40 year history. And I was going to be the first with the PhD in any, as I said, department. But I just decided, you know what? Um, I don't want to stay in this beautiful place anymore, despite the fact that I love Medina, I love the Prophet of the Masjid. But I realized that I have, I have a goal that is not going to be fulfilled if I stay in the city of the Prophet. And I also began to realize, and I know, I know this is why you're interviewing me, so I have to say this now. I also began to realize in the master's level that knowledge is beyond one strand of Islam. And I began to feel an inquisitiveness and curiosity that I knew would not be satisfied if I stayed in this track. And I could see all of my professors who were senior to me in knowledge, and I could see that their level of knowledge is accessible. I know how to get there. If I stay in this track and I read their books and I continue doing what I'm doing, I can see that. But I could see other people on other tracks, not on my track of basically one strand of Islam. And I didn't understand how to get there. Even at this stage, I had some books that were written um, by, uh, quote unquote, at the time I called them Orientalists, right? 
uh, still I had the antiquated term. I remember I had the philosophy of the Kalam by Harry Wolfson. You, you're aware of the book, obviously, right? You know, uh, uh, written in the, uh, the was it the early 60s? I mean, sorry, late 60s, early 70s. And of course, my speciality is theology and Kalam. And I remember just thinking, this is a mind that I don't understand how he got there. How could this guy write a book like this in English that I'm actually benefiting from and it's supposed to be my field? You know, Kalam is something I'm studying to critique, obviously, because Atari's critique Kalam. And I thought I knew my Kalam inside out. How could I not know Kalam? And I'm reading this book and I'm seeing, I don't understand this mind, how it gets there. You understand what I'm trying to say? My teachers, they're better than me. They're more knowledgeable than me, but I can see how they got there. I can see the track and I can see if I continue down this track, I'll be at that level, you know, inshallah ta'ala. But these other minds that I'm reading, I don't even understand how they got there. And I began to realize, you know what? I need to go beyond this, this beautiful, you know, uh, bubble that I'm in. It's a beautiful bubble. But if I want to be impactful in the world, I need to study in other bubbles as well. And I spoke to a very few of my professors who I really thought at the time were forward thinking. And they all encouraged me universally to go uh, and study. Otherwise, main, mainstream professors did not encourage me. My, my, and I, I don't want to mention any names uh, that are negative because I respect all of them. But the people that are famous in the field of Islamic studies were very skeptical. How could you go study with non-Muslims? How could you leave this, you know, and 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 give it all up, you know, and 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 then go and study with them? But there were two or three that understood in a different, you know, wavelength, um, uh, including Shafat Al Hawali, who's now in jail, and Sheikh Al Albami, who was a Hindu convert, and and he became the dean of the College of Haditha. My students know about him because I, I have an interview with him. And they were like, no, you need to leave. You need to go. You need to broaden your horizons. They, these were the words that yani, this, some of them were using with me. You need to go and learn from others. And I decided to apply to a number of universities, um, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Oxford. Uh, I applied and alhamdulillah, I got accepted to two of them, Oxford and Yale. And um, uh, it was a very difficult decision for five, six months between the two. I visited Oxford. I visited Yale, trying to make up my mind. And alhamdulillah, and without a doubt, my utmost respect to the other institute, but for me, I needed Yale because Yale gave me coursework and Oxford would have been straight PhD. And that's not what I needed. I needed the coursework, you know, at Yale. And alhamdulillah, I got accepted uh, 2004, the, the acceptance letter came, I think, or the beginning of 2005. And um, I then decided I was between, I was accepted to both. I had two, three months back and forth between Yale and Oxford. They're both trying to, alhamdulillah, both of the advisors trying to get me, alhamdulillah. And it was very, it's difficult because they both want you and they're both good people. And, you know, Pradis Tikhara talked to a lot of people. Um, and I realized that Yale was better for me. And alhamdulillah, it's, it was the right decision. So I started Yale 2005, um, 2005, uh, August. And then uh, I believe you finished in 2013. So as most PhD students know, like you spend five years in residence. So 2005 to 2010, I was uh, full time at Yale. And then 2010 to 2013, I was part time doing my PhD, ABD. So I was already teaching at Rhodes College and I was finishing my dissertation. And so I finished in 2013. Yes. So eight years at Yale and 10 years at Medina. Yeah. And then in terms of the, the coursework at Yale, I mean, what type of courses did you take? 
so um, most of the courses that I took at Yale uh, were something that uh, would, I would never have thought of having done beforehand. They're very interesting, very cutting edge courses. Obviously, you, as you're aware as well, some of the courses you take, um, they're just the standard stuff that you just have to take at any program. Uh, languages, for example, I had to take French for reading, German for reading. I had to take two years of Farsi. Uh, and that was something that uh, definitely was uh, uh, interesting. Um, I didn't have, I'm not much of a person who's interested in Romance languages, but I eked through French and German. I loved Farsi actually, it was a beautiful language, you know. Khali Shirin Zaban, Farsi Khali Shirin Zaban asked, right? You, you, you have to take Farsi too, right? In Elk or not? No. Oh, okay. You Would could, you? but I, I chose not to. Oh, okay. So, but you still have to take other languages, right? Yeah, I mean, in any PhD program, in any Western university, you have to take other languages. And that just shows you that they understand that knowledge is not restricted to any one language. And um, I remember asking uh, Professor Griffel, like, why do we have to take, like my first year, why do I have to take German and French? This is Islamic studies. And, you know, he said to me, you, the amount of scholarship that exists in these languages, you will never be a scholar. That's what he told me unless you're able to access these articles and papers. And now I understand, obviously, that there's so much out there. And coming from a speciality of, of theology, of aqidah, and coming across, um, you know, theology uh, and Giselkhaft, you know, the famous six volumes, uh, um, uh, um, what you call it, encyclopedia of theology. And even though I was just learning German, but to go through this, and to see a book like this had been written in German, my mind was abuzz because I, I could just imagine if I had that book in my master's, what, what how, how much benefit would have been to me. And of course, it's just recently been uh, translated, um, Religion and Society in first, second and third century of the Hijrah, uh, which is of course by Brill. But anyway, so I took languages. What else did I say? I mean, I took a lot of courses. I took um, Arabic manuscripts. I took a class on Arabic manuscripts. There's no such thing in University of Medina learning about Arabic manuscripts, you're, you're being introduced to the concept of, you know, how you approach a manuscript and how you examine it and how you uh, figure out the, um, if you have multiple manuscripts of the same book, how do you link the two of them? Is there a common source? So you, all of these things are very interesting techniques, never done uh, when, where I was studying. Uh, also, we took um, advanced courses in Islamic history, and that's, I think, one of the biggest vacuums of any seminary in the world. Azhar, Deoban, Nadwa, Jam Islamiya, all of them, they are very superficial when it comes to history, but Western academia is insistent on history. You need to study history. I took multiple classes on history. I took an entire class on this history of Islam in India, which was again, eye-opening to me by one of the world specialists in Indian Islam. Um, uh, she was from an atheist Hindu background, but really eye-opening. Uh, obviously, um, the Middle East, the Mamluk, I mean, took all of these various history classes. You're probably aware, one of the world specialists of Mamluks is in, is in Yale. And just to get exposed to that expertise and to know the sources. Um, I took a class about um, the proofs of the existence of God, because <laughs> that's Frank Griffel's one of his things. An entire class about, you know, um, and again, it's just three people in the class. It's not like 50 people. Uh, one of my most, the, one of the first classes I took, which was my introduction to Western epistemology. Uh, uh, again, it was so, it's so vividly seared in my memory that I've said this memory multiple times and People have heard this from me in multiple interviews, but it really, it really impacted me that this, this was the first class that I took at the at the graduate level, um, and that was an entire class on Fakhruddin al-Razi. Uh, so an entire semester about one person. Again, these classes don't exist in in the Eastern worlds. Medina doesn't have something like this. You know, Azhar they don't have these types of things. 
And I remember thinking, we're doing a whole semester on Razi. How much is there to do on Razi? And I walk in, it was just me, one other student, and Frank Riffle, three of us, right? The whole semester was in a room in the library, and we just meet every week. And I'll never forget when we walked in, you know, Frank Griffel says to me, and I, I'm sure he doesn't mind me saying this, we're also good friends. Frank Griffel says to me, and again, this is what, 15 years ago, so things have changed, meaning his own knowledge has changed. He says, I want to confess to you, I have no idea about anything of Fakhreddin al Rasi. I don't know anything. And I'm like, what? I just walked into a class, and you're supposed <laughs> to be my professor, and you're telling me you don't know anything about Razi. And he turns to me and he goes, You, Yasser, know more about Razi than I do. And I'm like, of course I do. I mean, he's wrote the, you know, I was, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, I don't know Frank that well at the time, he's still new. Right? But then he said something that just totally shook my world and the rest of the semester was just one eye opener after another. But in this class, we're going to study how to study Arazi. And that just blew my mind away. Like, what? And then one thing after another, every week we all three had an assignment and the teacher, professor, and the two of us were equally contributing to that assignment. So the first week, you know, I still have the binders. All of my binders in my classes, my life, I still have them. The first week, the question was not write a biography of Fakhrin al-Razi. No, the question was categorize the primary sources of the biography of Fakhrin al-Razi and mention their biases and paradigms. Think about that question here, right? Like at an undergraduate level, write a biography of Fakhrin al-Razi. No, this is now a PhD program. Categorize the primary sources, where do you get his life? I want to know the primary, not the secondary. I want to know the first group of people who talked about Arazi and tell me their biases, tell me where they're coming from, tell me I should know you know, their motivations and whatnot. And again, this was eye-opening to me because, again, coming from Medina, my instinct immediately, well, I'm going to go to Sir Alam al-Nubala of Al-Zahabi, you know. But then Al-Zahabi, with my utmost love and respect, is coming from a paradigm. And Arazi is from a different paradigm. And a Dhahabi is not the best person to get Arazi's unbiased. And this isn't, and again, this is a bit advanced here. This is not a slur on Imam al Dhahabi. It's just a factual statement. You don't go to a critic for a critic's biography. It's simple as that. You don't go to somebody who has a problem with you to find out about you. You go to multiple people, good and bad. And so you go to the, the and also a Dhahabi is coming two generations or three generations after Arazi, actually more than that. You know, he's coming uh, 200 years after Arazi. That's not fair to go to somebody two, three hundred years later. And so that's not a primary source in the first place, right? Seer Alam al is not a primary source and it's not an unbiased source. So for you to start thinking in those ways, to me, these were eye-opening. And then you go one after the other, talk about the stages of his life so that we can then, an, another project was categorize every single book of his, what time frame he wrote it. Why? Because you need to see the evolution of thought. No intellectual in the history of mankind remains firm on every single point of his. They evolve over time. And if you want to study somebody's life, well, then you need to see how old were they and what stage did they write a particular book in so that when you compare and contrast the books, you know which one is first and which one is second. Again, these are things that even in Medina, you kind of know this, but you never actually get to this level of categorizing every single book. And students are taught to do this as a part of every project that they're doing. That type of critical analysis that is ingrained into you, it makes you far more perceptive of classical literature. You start reading from a different worldview. You start contextualizing. Uh, uh, again, I mean, so much can be said about the, that class that I took, but that's just one of the classes. And then imagine an entire five years on and on and on like this. You, you start thinking in different ways. And it's not as if 
Frank Griffel or Professor Barbering or others, they taught me facts about the Quran and Sunnah that I didn't know. That's not the case. Rather, they're forcing questions that my mind has never thought of. And my own knowledge is then bringing answers that they don't necessarily know because it's not their area either. But it's a matter of paradigm, it's epistemology, it's how you think, it's how you contextualize. That is what the Western Institutes will teach you, along with a lot of facts, by the way. So again, much can be said, but history. You read any book of Islamic history written by an average sheikh or alim, and it is hagiography. It is romanticized history. It is picking issues here and there and then sugarcoating and then painting such a rosy picture of the past. By the way, that's not classical Islamic history. If you read Ibn Kathir, if you read At-Tabari, you know, Tariq al if you read any classical book, you see the good, the bad, the ugly, you see the raw, you see the civil wars, you see the tyranny, you see the injustice. You read pretty much almost any author from modern times and it's all sugarcoated to make this rosy, you know, beautiful past image, which is simply not true. I challenge anybody to read a cutting edge book in history written by um, any, you know, uh, Western intellectual uh, or, you know, reputable. Frank Donner is the, the classic example, right? He's the dawn of Islamic history and you got a chance to study with him, you know? Read some of those books and it just blows your mind away. Like it's such a different paradigm. So that's some of what we're, we're you know, we, we were exposed to. And Every student who's been there knows this, but I don't know. Does that answer your question, or? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going to elaborate more than more on this later on. But, but before we get there, I wanted to ask, how how would you describe the difference between Yale and you know Islamic University of Medina or or or, or a madrasa somewhere in Pakistan? I mean, what would you see are the key differences between these different institutions? So I think a lot of people they try to compare and contrast. And to me, there are two different worlds completely. There's no comparing and contrasting at all. The two fields, the epistemologies are so radically different. The questions that are asked are so radically different. The goals that they both have, they cannot and do not overlap. There are two completely distinct and separate paradigms. And people need to know what they're getting into. In a madrasa system, you are being trained by a group of religiously devout uh, people who are very interested in imparting their understanding of the religion upon the initiates, upon a new batch of people, so that their understanding of the religion is replicated and taught across the globe. There is a spiritual element, there is a preaching element, there is a survival element. They need to make sure that that strand survives. There is a salvational element. You want your students to be better so that they will be saved on the day of judgment. So the the questions that are going to be asked and the methodology by which those questions will be answered are very different. In the Western paradigm, there is no salvation element. There is no religious element. It is genuine curiosity about aspects that might overlap with the seminary, but the questions that are asked are very different and the answers and the methodology. So in the seminary, we want to learn what Allah and his messenger said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, in order to get to Jannah. And of course, it will be through the lens of a group of people with one paradigm of Islam. But at that stage, you don't understand it. You think that is the only way of Islam. But the point is that we are approaching the text in a, in a, in a manner by which we're wanting to extract salvational knowledge, knowledge that is going to help me spiritually and knowledge that 
preserves the community and knowledge that will then impact the broader community, i.e. propagating and preaching every seminary once it's graduates to preach uh, uh, to others. In fact, the word da'wah and the word da'i originated from the Ismaili da'wah in Al-Azhar University in 300, 300 Hijrah. You didn't call preachers da'is until Al-Azhar was created and it started sending its preachers out to give da'wah to the call of the Ismailis and then it was adopted by the Sunnis. But Sunnis are not interested in ever, ever figuring out that things might have come from outside the tradition. Da'wah as a term and as a as a tool was not used until the Ismailis. Not that it's wrong by them, just saying historically that's the fact. But my point is that that's not the case in the Western Seminary. In the Western Seminary, these questions of salvation and whatnot are not, they're not, they're, they're more interested, how did every group understand its own salvation? Okay, they're more interested in the anthropological and the historical and the contextual. They're not interested in the deeper questions because that's not their 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 paradigm. They're not interested in well, is the Quran from God or not? That's not what they're interested in. They don't even talk about this issue. My entire years of Yale and everybody knows this as well that goes academia. The question of whether the process is true or not, it's not even it's not even broached. It's not even relevant to them. You know, they're not really interested in it. They're more interested in how later people interpreted the Prophet how the Sahaba, the Tabi'un, how other groups, you know, people outside the faith, that's what they're more interested in. There's an element of history, an element of anthropology. There's no element of salvational, you know, uh, knowledge over there. So this really is important to underscore because people need to understand that if you're wanting a certain type of knowledge, you're, you're going to get it at a particular institution or a particular paradigm. You need to ask yourself, what do you want from when you're walking into that institution? You're not going to get the same type of knowledge or the same type of questions or the same type of methodology. Completely separate and distinct. And that's why if you're wanting basic Islamic knowledge to pray better, to be a better Muslim, that's not what Western Academy is, uh, Academy is even meant to do. You're, you're, you're making a mistake when you choose to walk into that paradigm thinking that you're going to come out a better Muslim. That's not what it's meant to do. It's meant to make you a thinker and train your thought processes. That's not the same as going to a madrasa system and it's going to hand you, this is how you pray, this is how you fast, this is our theology, this is how you approach the Quran. And they're going to give you well-developed paradigms. You are not expected to challenge within a narrow framework maybe, but you are not expected to challenge that paradigm whatsoever. You walk into Darul Uloom, Deobandi, you walk into Jam Islamiyah, Athari Salafi, you walk into Azhar, moderate Sufi Ash'ari, you are not expected to challenge status quo. If you do and you go beyond a red line, understandably, I totally understand, they will expel you. Or even afterwards, if you become too radical, they're simply going to declare your persona non grata. Like, we don't know this guy, even if he's studied with us, whatever. Understandably, they're preserving their own internal integrity. If you don't toe the party line, you're not preserving their integrity. In the Western world, they couldn't care less how and what you say and do because they're not interested in a cohesive integrity. They're interested in making you an independent thinker. And therefore, they have no problems if you are still, uh, you know, uh, very conservative in your worldview or you're very liberal or whatever. These, these adjectives mean nothing to them because they're not invested in you as a, as a person in your salvational, um, uh, um, uh, uh, if you like, eligibility in the hereafter. So the two paradigms are totally different and everybody who walks in should know what they're wanting to get in before they walk into either of these paradigms.
And I think that, that nicely sums up, I guess, a lot of what we're going to talk about throughout the episode. And I'm, I thank the doctor for, for describing that to us. Now, I was I went to a, a private Muslim high school and um, we had Islamic studies classes. And a lot of times the Islamic studies classes were taught by scholars, you know, Mulana so-and-so, Mufti so-and-so. And oftentimes there would be discussions of where you learn Islam, where you take your deen. And I remember uh, many times a lot of scholars would say that you cannot, you cannot learn Islam at a university. You cannot go to a University of Chicago and learn Islam over there. And whatever you do learn might have some type of corrupting um, uh, uh, impact on you. As I grew up, I, I realized that most of these same people, they themselves wanted so desperately to do a PhD at the University of Chicago or somewhere else. And so I'm, I'm sure that you've heard this before, that you know Islam cannot be learned at a university, you know, stay, stay home, I guess. Um, and you touched upon this, but I should probably ask again. I mean, do you agree with this statement? And what was your reaction to people who might have told you this? I know you told, you told me that there were some of your teachers who did support you in this endeavor. And I'm sure there are some teachers who might not have supported you, some friends who might not have supported you. So first of all, do you agree with this claim? And uh, I guess somebody, you could be, there's already, a, I guess, a, a, a spoiler before, but, and how do you react to people who might have this claim? If you walk into a Western Institute to study a spiritual level of Islam that is meant to make you a more pious Muslim, you're walking into the wrong arena. It's not right or wrong. It's simply that's not what it's catered to do. And um, I remember even at Rhodes College, like uh, when I was a professor there, I'd have innocent Muslims come in and they're like, yeah, I've never really studied anything about Islam. I wanted to study more about the Prophet system, the Quran and whatnot. I'm like, you know, I really appreciate that. But for that, you need to come to my halaqa in the masjid because I had a regular halaqa in Memphis. I'm like, look, I appreciate you coming here, but you do understand this is a, a class at a university and I'm going to be teaching in a different style and manner. I mean, ironically, there were times when I was teaching the seerah in the masjid and I was teaching the seerah uh, in Rhodes College. And it's not as if I'm preaching wrong or right. Uh, everything I say is correct. I mean, I would never say something wrong. But it is that what you're deriving from the seerah in the university and how you're presenting it is very different than what I'm saying in the masjid. It's a different context. So it's a bit broad to say you can't study Islam at a university. Rather, I would paraphrase that or I would reach, re, rephrase that and say, if you want to study Islam to be a more pious Muslim and your goal is just to read the Quran as a muttaqi and to derive some benefit from the seerah, then Western academic institutions are not made to do that. You're walking into the wrong place. However, if you wanted to study critical thinking, if you wanted to study epistemological tools to make you a better thinker, not necessarily, not necessarily more spiritual, but it's not as if it goes against spirituality. I don't think I'm any less spiritual than I was uh, and ask Allah for thabat and firmness, but it's a different type of awareness. If you're wanting to be challenged outside of your, your, your nice comfort zone and box, then yes, you're going to find Western academia very stimulating and you will be exposed to things that in order to answer them, 
you're going to have to study your tradition. And in the process, you will come out a stronger believer. But there is a risk. And that risk is you might not come out a stronger believer. You are walking into a very difficult zone where some very difficult facts that you are, are typically not said or you're not challenged with. And I don't want to mention too much here because most of my viewership would never have heard of these things. But there are elements in our history. There are elements in our tafsir literature. There are elements in the seerah that are there for anybody to read. But we kind of just gloss over them. And in the Western institutions, they're not going to gloss over them. They will cause you to reckon with your own tradition in a matter that Sunday school will never do. Any book of seerah without exception has elements of just toning down. That's why when I taught my seerah, I made it a point. I'm not going to expunge anything. And that's why I went into some very difficult topics. And I, even the ones I went into, some of them went a little bit and I pulled out and I didn't really go that deep. But I, I made it a point. I'm not going to sugarcoat because I kept on saying this line in my seerah. If you listen to it, I'd rather you hear it from me than anybody else. I'd rather you hear it from me than anybody else, right? And again, you listen to my seerah, the incident of the quote-unquote satanic verses, right? I mentioned the theories out there. People don't are not even aware of this. The incident of, you know, Zainab uh, bint Jahj radiallahu anha, and the whole issue is there. And again, listen to the seerah, to listen to the very, you're not going to find this in any book of seerah at all, modern book. You find it in the classics, you know? So Western universities are going to, Islamic studies, are going to bring these very difficult aspects that are found in our tradition, but are overlooked, glossed over, sugar-coated. They're not really made up and center. And for me, one of the most difficult things, and people know this from my lectures, was the issue of Quran, Quranic manuscripts, Ahruf Qiraat. This is a confusing topic for any person within the Islamic tradition. And dare I say, every advanced student from within the Islamic tradition knows that the concept of Ahruf and Qiraat remains unresolved. They can parrot answers that they've memorized, like I parroted answers in my book 20 years ago. They can parrot answers of a Suyuti and a Zarkashi and a, 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 a Tabari and a Jari. They know what they said, but every advanced student without exception, and I know this because I was there and I know students I've spoken to it, and I challenge anybody to actually you know, uh, uh, disagree with me on this who knows their stuff, that it's still a gray area, that people are still wondering what is the seven ahruf and its relationship with the qiraat and how does one resolve this and that now people have simplistic theories and you know what they're inherited jil and ba'da jil generation after generation and we inherit them and we keep them along okay you enter western academy they couldn't care less about your inheritance they couldn't care less about what you've been taught and they have zero respect for the tradition. It's not disrespect. It's just that they don't have respect. There's a big difference between the two. They don't care if you are in awe of your tradition. Good for you. There, here are all the facts. And let's see if we can figure out a theory for them. And for me, and I remember clearly this, that I knew my ulum al-Quran inside out. I mean, I've written a book about it. If anybody doubts, and I'm not trying to brag or boast, if anybody doubts my knowledge, they can read my book that I wrote when I was 20 years old. That was the book I wrote when I was 20 years old. And they can see for themselves, I knew my stuff in the classical tradition at the age of 20. Now I'm entering Yale, you know, in my early 30s now, another decade, now in my mid-40s now, and I'm still doing research on these issues, by the way. And I think I know my sciences, the Quran, because I've memorized and regurgitated, but deep down inside, there are these, these issues. 
you walk in and they start prodding. They start they start saying, ah, that doesn't make sense to you, and you know it. And they start shining lights. And they bring you things from your own tradition that I've read and I knew. But of course, you keep them aside. You don't really think about them. And you are forced to deal with your own heritage in a way that you've never been forced to. Why? Because, and I, I, I hate using this example, but there's an element of truth. You all know, or I don't know, is it a different era or not, this st famous story of the king, the emperor with no clothes, right? Where the emperor is walking around without any clothes and everybody's too embarrassed to point out the obvious. But since everybody's too embarrassed to point out the obvious, everybody assumes that, I guess the emperor must be wearing clothes because nobody's saying the obvious, right? It's that until the five-year-old kid says, hey, the emperor has no clothes. Then everybody realizes, hey, actually he doesn't have any clothes on. A lot of times there are certain facts, quote unquote, or I should say certain interpretations that have a similar analogy in our own tradition where we are taught this at the madrasa and I look around and my entire class is saying, yes, writing notes, my sheikh, all of the teachers are saying it. And I'm like, okay, I guess I just don't understand then, right? Everybody's saying it. It's got to be the case. Then you walk into these Western institutions and they just blase, completely casual. They'll say, yeah, the emperor has no clothes. And you're like, how did he know that I was thinking that, but I was too scared to say, you, do you see the analogy I'm trying to say? I don't want to be too explicit because I don't want to confuse the readers out there or the listeners out there, but I'm trying to explain that there are certain problematic issues in all of the sciences that every tradition has simply agreed to just pass down and you memorize and you regurgitate. The problems are not solved simply by regurgitating. Western tradition doesn't care about your tradition and it'll just call the problem a problem. And it'll just say, well, obviously this is an issue. And then it will produce its own theories. Its theories are so bizarre and so off the mark at times that you're like, no, I can't, I can't do this. If I were to go down that route, there's no longer any Islam left. And those were the theories that they were doing about the Quran. And obviously from my paradigm, that's not going to happen. You're forced then to reckon with the facts that are found in your own tradition. There aren't, these aren't facts that they're inventing. These aren't issues that they're brainwashing you. Unlike what simpletons try to say of me and others, there's no brainwashing going on. You know, if you look at the, the tradition, these are facts found within the tradition. But the tradition has evolved to make this illusion of a beautiful building. And you are taught this building. But then Western academia shows you the imperfections of that building, shows you the human element of that building that you were that you were taught was divine. So all of this is mere speech because I don't want to get to actual examples because that is very problematic. I'm conscious of the fact that I don't want to make people doubt the tradition. I want them to understand the tradition is a human element and it's good and it should remain there. But Western academia will cause you to think in a different level. And that level has pros and cons for the average Muslim. I guess I'll leave it at that for now for that question. I mean, I somewhat agree with you. I, I definitely think that there are certain uh, blemishes that are uncovered in Western academia. But I, I wonder, I'm kind of on the opposite end, was there anything that you were kind of, you know, so-so about and then you go and then you learn it from like at, at Yale and then you begin to appreciate it even more, um, like any field or any specialty or anything like this? Um, you're talking about from the Islamic sciences paradigm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that the Western academia, I already appreciated Islamic sciences. I mean, again, realize I spent 10 years in Medina. Alhamdulillah, all of the mainstream fields from fiqh and hadith, and I had a passion in qiraat and Quran, ulum al-Quran. It's not as if 
Western academia taught me to appreciate. However, I guess because I already appreciate saying I'm not, there's no, there was no lack of appreciation from the beginning. Um, I guess if anything, it, it caused me to appreciate the the polymath nature of so many of our uh, ulama that we look up to, Asyuti and um, Ibn Taymiyyah and others. The very fact that they could master so many different traditions and so many different um, uh, knowledges and sciences and writing about them, I think that's one thing that I think I appreciated more. But in terms of a science, I never had any negative about a science anyway. So I still appreciate all the classical sciences of Islam. It's just that I appreciate them from a different manner now, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'd like to move on and just ask you more about your time at Yale and the fundamental differences between your time there and your time at Medina. So how would you say that the style of education was different between the, the, the two institutions and your relationship with your teachers? Like at Yale, there's a lot of papers. I mean, we have to write so many papers. Uh, is this the same thing you'd be doing at Medina? Uh, no. Is there more of an emphasis on exam? Or I got the old system, which is now no longer existent. It was, um, and I'm pretty sure there's not that much difference, except that it's a bit watered down, I've heard, but pure memorization, pure memorization. Very, very little critical thinking. In fact, you are not allowed to challenge beyond a very narrow spectrum. You're not allowed to challenge because that is the, the goal of a madrasa, is to cause you to memorize and to cause you to regurgitate. You know, our exams were comprehensive. We had to do 25 hours a semester, 25 hours we took, not 18, 25 hours a semester, 17, 18 subjects, you know, at a time. And every single exam was simply memorizing everything and regurgitating. You did not have to have much comprehension. If you could memorize, you would get an A. Yale is the exact opposite, zero memorizing, 100% comprehension. That's why there's papers. These papers are probing. These papers challenge your understanding. You are forced to think about issues critically. Totally different uh, paradigms of teaching styles. As you yourself mentioned, at Yale, we had a paper a week for almost every single class. At Medina, we had one comprehensive exam at the end. The entire binder had to be memorized word for word. I remember some of the binders literally, it's as if you are replicating half the binder in your final exam from memory. That's what it is. Um, and again, each system, this is not a this is not a diss at either. It is simply a factual uh, analysis that this is what it is, that the Medina system or any Islamic system is meant to produce mini walking encyclopedias. You're expected to memorize vast amounts of the classical heritage and then regurgitate. And those that are able to do that are admired immensely. And the greatest ulama that I studied with truly were walking encyclopedias. You know, you 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 are you can't help be impressed when in the Isnad somebody's mentioned and your sheikh from memory says, Oh, this so and so, he's actually so and so, the son of so and so, so born this, died here, his teachers where he lived there. And, you know, as you know, there's like 10,000 people, you know, in the chains. And for this person to know this person, you know, for this sheikh to know this person off the top of his head and be able to regurgitate. Now, obviously, at some level, it takes you 10 seconds to look this person up on your own. But the fact that somebody's memorized it is very impressive. The same goes for the fiqh opinions, for example. And again, uh, I'm not trying to be dismissive at all. 
But it is impressive when the Sheikh can, you ask him any question, he'll close his eyes, he's going to say, oh, the Hanafi say this, and the reason they say this is because of this and that, and their usul al-book, their usul al-fiqh is based on that. The Shafi'i say that, the Maliki say that, and you know, Ibn Taymiyyah says this, the Hanbali say that. For him to quote you off the top of his head, there's no doubt that is very impressive. With my utmost humility and respect though, it's not that difficult to look this up yourself and extract the same things. The more difficult aspect would then be to contextualize and think it through. And not that they cannot do that, but that's not what they're taught to do per se. What they're primarily taught to do is to memorize. And of course, the uh, Western tradition, they don't care about memory at all, at all. You are not expected to, nor is it something per se impressive that you know anything from memory. They understand the books are all there. They understand you can look them up. We never had a closed book exam at Yale, as far as I remember. I don't think we ever had one closed book exam um, at all, as much to the best of my memory. Maybe there was something basic, nothing that I can even remember like this. It's all papers and open book and do your own research. So the teaching styles are totally different. And obviously the questions are totally different as well. As like you understand, I, uh, like I already explained, the questions from an Islamic madrasa are salvational and they are uh, meant for you to understand the paradigm they're coming from. You know, how many types of Tawheed are there? What are the evidence of the types of Tawheed? List the types of Qadr. You're not allowed to challenge the types of Qadr. You cannot say, well, actually, this is what Ibn Taymiyyah said, but uh, Ar-Razi said this, and Al-Maturidi said that, and actually, Qadi Abdul Jabbar said this. You cannot defend Qadi Abdul Jabbar, the Mu'tazili, in Medina. If you were to do that, you would be expelled. Whereas, maybe an equivalent at Yale would be, you know, how did various Muslim theologians understand the concept of Qadr? And, you know, you're supposed to contrast between the schools at an equal level. That's not going to be possible at any theological institution because there's always one correct opinion. And I think that's, I, I didn't say this explicitly, in every Eastern institution, there's one correct opinion. In some issues of fiqh, they might allow you two or three, but generally there's one answer. And this is the right answer. And you'd better say the right answer or else something is wrong with you. Whereas... In the Western institution, you are not expected to say any answer. You have not only the freedom, but you are encouraged to be your own person. And of course, that has its pros and cons because, again, they're not interested in the truth or the haq with the capital ha. I make fun of this. They're not interested in the haq. They're interested in the thought processes. Whereas Eastern institutions are interested in the truth and what is the truth, and you memorize the truth, and then you defend and propagate the truth. Some differences between Medina and Yale. I had the good fortune of studying at some madaris, and I remember that my relationship with my teachers was somewhat formal, uh, depending on their age. And so there was, you know, khidma that you do for your teachers. There's a high level of respect that you have. I would never think to call my teacher, um, hey, Muhammad, I'd say, you know, Sheikh or Mulan or something like this. So I, I'm assuming you had some of this, some of the similar kind of relationship with your teachers in Medina. And I wonder how that changed when you got to Yale in terms of a relationship that you had with these people that, I mean, you work with them for a long time, uh, you know, two years of coursework, two or three years of coursework, and then you're writing your dissertation, you're, you're interacting with them. So, I mean, you develop this love for them. So, I mean, how is the relationship between your teachers different between the two places? Yeah, obviously, this, this is reflected in the relationship as well. So, obviously, the Eastern tradition, and again, I really appreciate and love that. You're expected to honor, you're expected to do khidmah of your teachers, you're expected to, you know, sit with a certain posture, you cannot even, you know, sit comfortably, you know this, like if you sit with adab and respect when you're in front of the teacher, you 
are physically, you know, do them khidma if you're able to, you know, if they, if you're able to, I mean, I wasn't able to do that to most of your teachers in Medina, but I mean, those that you're able to, you give them gifts, or you do them khidma, you make chai for them if, if they're at your house, whatever, you physically show them their respect, and that's great, and that's spiritual knowledge. Obviously, at Yale, that's a, it's a more of a friendly relationship. I remember, you know, Frank Griffel, the, the day that, um, uh, uh, we used to call him, you know, Professor Professor Gribble, Professor Griffel. And the day that I, I passed the ABD exam, and so, so technically I'm a professor or a PhD, the first thing he tells me is like, okay, yes, sir, from now on, don't call me Professor Griffel. Call me Frank. I'm like, whoa, for <laughs> two years, three years, I've been calling you a professor. It feels weird. He goes, no, you are now a colleague of mine. And like, it's just, again, it's interesting to be told that, you know? You're now a colleague of mine. You are a PhD. I mean, technically, I didn't quite have it. You get the point. I'm basically ABD. I, I passed the comprehensives, and it's just a matter of the paperwork. And say, now you're a colleague of mine. You're going to call me. And and even I never felt that formality. Even when I called him Professor Griffel, for example, there was a genuine camaraderie and friendship. We would go back and forth. You know, would visit each other and talk about Nishapurian uh, you know, theologies. I mean, he also had an interest in what I had an interest in, even though Professor Bovering was my advisor, but I had a more of a friend, and also he's much older than Bovering is in his 80s now, whereas Professor Griffel was just a few years older than me. And uh, I had a much more friendly rapport. It was very friendly. There was no formality per se at all. And still, if I were to call him up, he would just be, hey, Frank, hey, Yasser, how are you doing? Even though he is a professor of mine, same goes for the others as well. There was a much more friendly rapport uh, and again, that's nothing. I'm not trying to be positive or negative. I don't think that's a good thing. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm simply describing it as it is, where there is a marked difference. I don't want that to be imported to Medina or Azhar. There should be the Islamic etiquette of ihtiram to your shuyukh. But again, the teachers at Western institutes are not shuyukh. And they don't have the spiritual lineage and baggage that would require, have, that have that requisite for the for the respect. There's nothing wrong with that. People need to understand, you know, different worlds, different paradigms, different different ways to deal with them. So, yeah, there was no, uh, there was no um, uh, ihtiram that was given to the, the, the teachers at, at Western Institutes. And what about your relationship with your, with, with your, with your peers? I mean, this, you're an individual who's Muslim, very clearly Muslim. You've studied at an Islamic university elsewhere. Uh, you're sitting in the classroom with a bunch of people who are studying these topics, which at times can be something that's you know, that that relates to you on a very deep level. And I mean, how is your interaction with them? I mean, do you like do people might be uncomfortable with and other individuals studying the tradition in this way? Uh, so I was wondering what your what was your relationship with your peers? No, alhamdulillah, I never had any issues with my friends and peers. Some were Muslim, uh, many were non-Muslim. Um, I, I think it's just a matter of your own attitude and how you deal with it. And I was never, um, uh, I was never domineering about you have to follow my view or else. I mean, he, people knew that I had my views and I was very vocal about my views wherever I went, but I was always respectful. And um, I never had any issues with any of my uh, colleagues and peers where obviously I was closer to some than others. And I guess inevitably, generally speaking, the one practicing Muslims that were there. And by the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you do know that um, in the early 2000s, you know, very few practicing Muslims were in academia. This is changing within your generation in particular, right? When I entered academia, hardly anybody was publicly observant in Western academia, in Islamic studies. I mean, obviously, I mean in Islamic studies, obviously, yeah. right? It was a different realm. I mean, um, it's only been a generation 
when uh, Edward Said in, in his Orientalism wrote, you know, Islamic studies, Muslims need not apply, right? It's only been one generation since Edward Said wrote that, where there were no Muslims and Arabs even in academia in Islamic studies. And Edward Said called them out on that. Things began to change a generation ago. But as most people are aware, even up until a decade ago, it was quite rare to see a visually observant, i.e. a bearded half of the Quran graduate of Medina. It's just, it's it's still rare, by the way. To this day, there hasn't been um, a Medina um, uh, person that's come to any West, as far as I'm aware, in Islamic studies um, after me. So it's still not that common, but it is, alhamdulillah, much more acceptable for an observant Muslim. I attended an AAR conference, was it two years ago, or three years, two years ago, I think. And I was so happy to see, alhamdulillah, so many people that are of you know, hijab. And not that I'm judging others, I'm simply saying that was not common 15 years ago at all. And so things have changed. And I'm always grateful to um, to Yale and to Professor Bovering for quote unquote risking me because someone like me coming from an observant and practicing and you know, I was always like the beard is here and everybody knows I'm coming from Medina. It's not something that is typical in Western academia, as you're aware even to this day. But alhamdulillah, things are changing and more observant Muslims are now coming. And that is now becoming acceptable. And I think that's a very positive thing overall. But in my case, there was never any anything negative, alhamdulillah, that I can recall. You know, some students you got along with and others um, you didn't. But that's the case in any any institute. No, no big deal there. And then I'm assuming you taught. Well, you have to have taught at Yale. So I was wondering, what did you teach and did you bring anything from your time at, at the Islamic University of Medina uh, in teaching these classes at, at Yale? So uh, Yale uh, being, I don't know if it's changed, but when I was there, uh, they were very, very particular about this, that graduate students could never independently teach because they wanted the prestige of only the professors teaching the undergrads. Right. Almost all other institutes in the world require graduate students to teach undergrads. Yale did not want that. Yale, and I don't know if it's changed or not, but when I was there, you could not teach an independent class because they wanted, and Yale is a very small university compared to you know, Harvard and Princeton. You know, Yale is one of the smallest of the Ivy Leagues. And they pride themselves on their small classrooms and they pride themselves on the ratio of the professor to the students, and they pride themselves on, you know, cutting edge professors teaching five, 10, 20 students, you know? And so we could not independently teach. What we did was that we um, uh, became TAs for two years. It was a part of our contract. And so I was a TA for multiple classes in history and Islamic studies in modern Islam, uh, in the class on atheism, you know, by some, some professor, world famous professor. So I was just a TA uh, and a TA, sometimes takes over a class or two, and I did that, um, but doesn't teach the entire class. So a TA can stand in for a class or two, and you know my professors encouraged me to do that, so I would actually teach an entire one class, not a semester, just a class or two in the whole semester. But other than that, I would be in charge of um, uh, discussion sessions. And so that's a very important requirement of Yale, that almost every class has a verbal discussion. And so as the TA, you are in charge, not the professor. So you get to interact with the students and then rehash or reteach them verbally what the professor has taught them in class. And 
Alhamdulillah, I mean, I have all of the reviews even. I, I taught uh, for two two years. Uh, I was a TA for two years. And so in the course of that, I taught at least 150 um, ELEs, undergraduates, uh, as a TA. And uh, uh, the reviews were very, very positive. And uh, they appreciated my honesty. They appreciated my openness. I never, I never hid who I was, my identity, my background. Everybody knew that I was a quote-unquote cleric as well. I was, even at that stage, I had somewhat of a national reputation and many of my students knew that um, and they appreciated it. I never had any issues. I never pretended to be anybody else, but I always maintained a level of professionalism. So I had to be careful and I still have to be careful. You don't become preachy at a Western institution. You need to know the lines of being preachy versus being academic. And that's a very clear line. And Alhamdulillah, I never in my entire 15 years, never was that an issue people understood uh, what I'm saying versus what I believe versus everything. So I never had an issue with that. But Muslims need to understand you cannot give da'wah as a professor. I remember at, at Rhodes, actually, this is a different thing. Somebody wanted to um, accept Islam in my class, came to my office. And I said to him, like, well, in order to continue this conversation, you're going to have to come to my masjid. I literally said to him that we can't do this on premises. Alhamdulillah, I'm happy. But you want to continue, and he came to the masjid, we continue, alhamdulillah, he accepted Islam in the masjid, right? I can't do that on class because I didn't want to, I mean, technically it's allowed, but I didn't want the far right person to jump in and say, oh, this guy's doing this. And I don't want that to happen. It's ridiculous to do that. You're going to lose your career and job over something like this. And you're like, you're like, you know, this is something possible outside the classroom. Inside the classroom, you cannot become preachy. You're gonna, you wouldn't want this to happen from another, uh, you know, faith paradigm. You wouldn't want to. Christian to come and give da'wah to your child in college either, would you, right? So you have to um, monitor that issue of how you say things. And if somebody is interested in the spiritual side, you say, well, that's great. I'm happy for you. Let's talk, you know, um, outside campus. And I would do that. And my time at Rhodes, by the way, alhamdulillah, a number of students embraced Islam. Um, but I never became preachy on campus. You, you see what I'm trying to say? I would always continue the conversation off campus with that. So kind of just going back to the structure of the different between the two universities in, in, in more of a madrasa setting, you cannot just jump into the study of you know, Bukhari or something like this. You have to go through several books. So I, I wonder, was this different at Yale? I mean, did you did you notice that there was a disregard for prerequisites or do, do you say do you, would you say that the prerequisites weren't as stringent or weren't like, you know, as strong as they should have been? Uh, and what about the Arabic? Uh, Arabic, as we know, is a very important you know, language in our field. How would you compare the the level of Arabic knowledge between the, the students and the teachers of the two institutions? Of course, there's no prerequisites at Yale. It's a totally different paradigm, completely different paradigm. The whole notion of having certain knowledge before you get to other knowledge is something that is very much a part of our tradition. <laughs> How else to say this? Like, they don't give respect to what we give respect to. The whole sciences of hadith is not something they respect. So why would you need to know the sciences of hadith when you approach Bukhari, right? Why would you need to know their prerequisites? From, from the perspective of the Western institutes, these prerequisites are a human tradition. And they have the full right to approach Bukhari with their own prerequisites, as you do to do with your own prerequisites, right? So it's not a matter of disrespecting from their perspective. It's a matter of you have invented a construct. You have invented a ladder. 
and you're going to use that ladder to get to your sources, good for you. They're going to say, we are not obliged to follow that ladder. We're not obliged to go through that system. That's what you have invented. We want to approach it from a totally different perspective. So no, they don't have those prerequisites at all because that's not the way they're looking at it. Um, and again, we, it's difficult to explain over an interview and um, those who took my class in the Islamic seminary are aware because we went over these in more detail uh, and they've seen themselves firsthand. Um, in an interview, it's difficult for the average person to, to understand this. Um, and that, that's one of the reasons, by the way, these interviews are awkward because it is so easy for somebody, and I have plenty of them, to just find that 10 seconds that they don't understand and they just make a, a video clip out of it. And it's just that what I have to, it's one of the nuisances I have to deal with in a long time. Um, but your other question was about Arabic, and definitely that's another issue as well that most of the Western Academy, um, because of the fact that they're studying as a second language, their grasp of Arabic is not like it is, you know, ours. Definitely most of us, I know for sure myself, I understood Arabic better than any of my professors, any. And I understood Arabic texts better than any of them when we were reading them in class. But still, they had knowledge that I did not have. And they had access to knowledge I did not have. I'll never forget, um, you know, Dimitri Gutas, right? <laughs> So I took a class with him, one of the dons who has a lot of positives and negatives, but let's not say anymore. Um, I took a class with him and he brought up an issue and he gave us a reference, you know, and he goes, oh, it's this and this source. And he said it in Greek. And we said, oh, we don't we don't read uh, Greek. Sorry. So he said, oh, OK, don't worry. He wrote us something else. He goes, this is um, in Latin. Surely you read Latin, right? He goes, no, we don't have Latin either. He's like, and then he gave us a third language. I forgot what. And like all of us looked at, we don't have this as well. He got so frustrated. He goes, my God, what has happened to Yale? How can they accept students who don't know any of these languages anymore? Right. And we were doing a class on Arabic and Islamic studies with Gutas. Okay. So sure, he doesn't know Sahil Bukhari like I do, but he has references to Islamic writings in, you know, ancient, you know, German or not ancient German, but in pre-modern German. He has issues that are, that we were doing Arabic grammar, by the way. We were doing Arabic grammar, okay, in that class. And there are treatises written 400 years ago in Latin that he wanted us to look up about how the West is looking at Arabic grammar. You know, the first treatises of Nahu were written in Latin. Um, the first treatises in the Western world uh, were written in Latin, obviously, right? And we're doing the history of Arabic grammar in the Western world, right? And he's just spouting things from the top of his mind. And he's saying, look at how they view the Arabic language. Look at this. And he's comparing and contrasting. And again, I've studied the Al-Fiyat ibn Malik cover to cover. And I know Arabic Nahu from within the tradition infinitely better than Gutas. No question about it. But there are knowledges that are separate than my nice, beautiful bubble. And that is, for example, how Western philologists, how Western language experts are looking at the Arabic Nahu and how they're categorizing. And that's useful. It's very interesting. It'll also help you teaching Arabic to Westerners because they've looked at it from a different paradigm than Easterners have, for example. And I did not have access to that knowledge. Now, is that knowledge useful to a Madrasa student? Probably not. Not at all. But is it useful to a professor of Arabic studies? Definitely yes. Is it useful to somebody who's going to teach Arabic to a Western audience? Definitely yes. Is it useful somebody wants to enter Jannah? Not necessarily, you know. So it's just a different type of knowledge that, that they have that I don't have. Um, again, I can give other examples as well, but um, uh, 
I think it's it's clear to say that simple classical reading Arabic was not their forte. And sometimes they would struggle, sometimes they would make mistakes, sometimes they would have recourse to dictionaries. That's the reality. I think what it really underscores is that we need trained Muslims who understand the tradition to enter these fields and to take the good and to hone the bad and to produce a higher level of scholarship. That's one of the things that I'm encouraging people to do that are qualified to do that. You, you touched upon this before, but you sit in class and there are these scholars that you revere, that you have a lot of respect for. There's also you know, the Prophet, there's the Quran. But these things, they, they don't, they're not you know, things that you revere anymore in your class. The professor might have some respect, depending on who the professor is. I mean, they might say, uh, might make some jokes, you know, some comments here and there. But generally, when you hear your peers and your professors talking about this, um, something that might, you know, rub you the wrong way with regard to, you know, okay, some details of the prophet, uh, the prophet's life that you didn't really, um, you know, you probably encountered it before, but you probably didn't think much about it or dwell much about it. Um, or someone may be describing the tradition, the, the Islamic tradition in a certain way. I mean, did you react to this like uh, on an emotional level, I suppose, when you kind of hear these things? That's a good question. Um, I was prepared for that. I came prepared. I knew that I would hear things that would be problematic. And I already asked one of my teachers this as well. Sheikh Safar Hawali, a person that I admired immensely, I already asked him this, uh, and he told me that don't worry uh, about uh, this. You you are not going to be held accountable uh, for this on a spiritual because I was worried spiritually. I was worried, am I ethically sinful for sitting in a place where things are said that are semi blasphemous? This is before going to Yale. Am I ethically sinful for just being quiet and observing? and saying things that, or hearing things, sorry, that would be problematic. And somebody that I greatly admire and respect said, look, your intention is to learn these arguments so that you can better defend in the future. You don't have to answer right then and there. Your goal is to understand what they're saying so that you can then form a better defense. And I appreciated that response and I've lived by that response. So yes, there were things that were said, but you know, a lot of people, they don't quite understand as well that, generally speaking, Western academia is not out to deconstruct Islam. They're not enemies and zanadiqa that they want to just destroy. They are genuinely curious people with open minds who are looking at the tradition from a very different framework than you are. Now, whether that ends up destroying your tradition or not is up to you. It's not necessarily their goal. They're not generally speaking, I'm sure one or two are, generally, and you know this, you're at Yale too, I mean, and people in Western Academy know this, they're not people who are harboring resentments and anger. And this is something that the average Muslim finds incomprehensible. Like, why are people dedicating their lives to Islam and they're not Muslim? And that's because they've never met these people and never interacted with them like me and you have, like other people have. People don't understand that the Western world is full of people that are intellectually curious. And they just decide to take a career, not because they have a spiritual investment, but because their curiosity has been piqued and they take a, they make a career out of it. They have no actual goal per se about wanting to brainwash you or not brainwash you. That's not their goal. They're just 
curious and asking questions and researching and writing papers and they're taking you along for a ride and it's up to you how much you want to be impacted or not. So um, was that answering your question or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and before I go on to the next question, I should probably ask, are you critical of anything uh, with regard to the Islamic University of Medina and what's your attitude uh, towards it right now? So I consider it to be one of my biggest blessings that Allah has blessed me with um, after Islam and after my parents. Uh, the fact that I went to the University of Medina for 10 years, it is something I am proud of. It is something that I am humbled that Allah blessed me to do. I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever. It shaped me. It made me who I am. I benefited immensely from it. And I have tried my utmost in the last uh, 20 or 15, uh, um, 20 years, actually, subhanAllah, how long has it been? Uh, so it has been... Uh, uh, 25 years, subhanAllah, since I stepped foot in Medina. I have tried my utmost to never utter any disparaging comment about uh, the people or the system. I have utmost love and respect for them and it has shaped me. And as I said, I'm grateful to Allah for Medina. That having been said, every institute of Islamic learning, without exception, understandably and justifiably has a specific methodology and a specific theology and a specific ideology and it wishes for its students to absorb and imbibe and then reproduce that specific understanding of islam and again that is understandable obviously someone like myself who was a part of that paradigm and agreed with it and then decided to move on, it has created, not intentionally from my side, some tensions between the official narrative, between some of the scholars of that paradigm, between many of its graduates, and between myself. And you see this on Twitter, on Facebook, online, refutation videos. And throughout all of this, I have endeavored to be somebody who tries my best to maintain a respectful attitude. I understand their concerns. I understand they view me as having left the paradigm of Medina. To a certain extent, they are correct. I have. Whether I'm a deviant or not is another issue altogether, but I am no longer officially parroting the narrative that I used to believe in 15 years ago. But I have nothing but respect for all of my teachers, even the ones who criticize me. I have remained silent and I ask Allah for my hidayah and their hidayah. And for the students as well that are sincere in their criticisms, I understand. And perhaps I would have been the same 20 years ago. Perhaps I would have been the same uh, before seeing what I have seen. All I can say is that those people who criticize, especially those who speak English as a mother language, that they clearly have not even read a single work or have experienced the knowledge that comes from different paradigms. And they are suspicious of any knowledge outside of their paradigm. And because of that, it's difficult to engage with somebody. You know, there's a saying in Arabic that people will be enemies to that which they're ignorant about. And this we see in this issue between me and some of the graduates of Medina where because they don't understand my changes, because they don't understand what has influenced me, because they're refusing to even read 
any book outside of their paradigm and tradition. Understandably, they see me and they wag fingers, say, ah, look, you see what happens when you leave our tradition. And it's not just me, you know, the Obandis that gravitate away from their school, you know, Ash'aris who gravitate away from their school, anyone who does that, the people that are left in the school, they have no alternative other than to problematize, anathematize, hereticize those who leave the school. Because in order to validate your school, you have to invalidate other schools. And especially the most dangerous person is the one who mastered your school and then decided to move on or move it or leave it or abandon it, understandably. So I'm being very cautious and I'm trying my utmost to balance my respect of my previous world. And to this day, I don't think I have ever uttered anything negative or harsh. And if I do, it was unintentional. It was not something I'm intending to do or people are reading in. I'm trying to maintain my utmost respect. Medina represents a tradition. It is an Ibn Taymiyyah slash Ibn Abdul Wahhab understanding of Islam. And that has a purpose and that serves a function and goal in the Muslim Ummah. And other institutes have their understandings and paradigms, all of them. I'm trying my best to be respectful, even as I'm saying, me personally, I have moved on from that paradigm, even as that paradigm has shaped me. That's that's all I can say at, uh, at uh, without getting into too much more detail. Thank you for that. And I don't want to keep you here longer than, you know, how you've been very generous with your time. So I just wanted to ask a few quick questions. And they, one of the questions that I had, you know, I think we discussed it a lot, but I, I do kind of want to rephrase it because I think it will be somewhat valuable. So I, I had the opportunity to study at, you know, uh, you know, Darul Salaam, Darul Qasim, two very good institutes, madrasas at, um, in Chicago. And I've also had the opportunity to study at the University of Chicago, and I'm at Yale right now. And so I already think about some of the benefits of the two places. And, and you know, like, for example, there is there's a lot of languages that are offered at Yale and University of Syriac. If you're interested in these types of Greek, Syriac, that you wouldn't really be um, offered in a mother's. And nor should, I mean, that's not really their goal either. But I wonder, as someone who is in a position to kind of formulate your own model and your own, uh, you know, various curricula, what would you bring from the two worlds? Or what would you say, well, maybe uh, there's a lot you could bring. I guess what would, what would be two or three of the most important things you could bring to the two worlds and kind of just marry them and, and, and have them present in an institution? Well, that's a very good question, which is actually quite relevant because that's exactly what I'm doing at the Islamic Summit of America. That is exactly what I am doing. That has been my goal for the last decade and a half. Uh, and that is to bring the best of both worlds because the both of them have so much to offer. And um, the, I've taught two classes uh, at so far because it's only been one year. The first class we did was the advanced Quranic studies and the second class was advanced uh, theology or Aqidah. And Alhamdulillah, there's been over 150 students in both of these classes. And you can see for yourself and, and ask them as well that it's been very different, very cutting edge, very, very atypical from either Yale or Medina because we're bringing the both of these into the classroom, both paradigms. So for example, when it comes to theology, again, very interesting way we did this is that we went over the entire history of the classic, this is part one, theology part one, so we did the classical schools. So we went over all of the classical theological movements that developed and we contextualized them and we went back to their original sources. We discussed why they came, how they came, 
And we also did this, so again, this is something that <clears throat> every institute would do for other schools, but it wouldn't do for its own school because that's where the taboo comes. So the Darul Ulum guys would do it for the other madrasas. The Wahhabis came from there. The, the They came from there. They wouldn't do it to their own. Uh, the Medina guys would do it for all the other. The Ashais came from there. The Sufis came from there. The Shia came from there. They would never do it to their own. That's where the red line would come. And we did it to all of the schools equally. And we saw the development in every single school, how the Ash'aris developed, how the, 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 the Mu'tazila developed, how the Khawarij developed, the various schisms of the Kharijites, and then how the Atharis developed as well, and the strands within Atharism, and Ibn Taymiyyah, and what he contributed, and how there were different strands before him and after him, and then Ibn Abdul Wahhab, and what he did, and how he modified and changed things that were not Ibn Taymiyyah's time. And again, we were respectful and factual throughout all. My goal was that if anybody from any movement was attending, they couldn't criticize us for being partisan. We're being truthful and as academic and as rigorous as humanly possible. And the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive because again, we're going back to the sources. We're also going to analyses written by people that are generally speaking quite neutral in this regard. For the Quranic uh, sciences as well, we did the same thing where we are mentioning the one of the main books assigned was the Suyuti's Itqan, which is the classic book of Ulum al-Quran. But along with that, I'm bringing in manuscript studies, the Sana'a palimpsests, which a lot of Muslims are not dealing with. This is an issue of modern Quranic studies that is very, very, very problematic. And most of our ulama are completely unaware of what is going on in the Western world. Quranic studies is a classic example of the disconnect between traditional Islam, Islamic studies, and between the modern Western world. Frankly, this is a field where more and more Muslims are asking the questions because this knowledge of the West is trickling down in mainstream articles. You know, the Sana'a discovery is something that the average Muslim is aware of if they're aware of what's going on. But they're not aware of what's inside of it and the, the repercussions. In our class, we were very clear. We brought in everything and we said, okay, what can we do? How can we respond to these issues? What can we think about and rethink through uh, from uh, uh, from the classical side, along with some of these problematic issues that are coming out uh, from the manuscripts and the differences between the manuscripts and the Uthmanica versions and whatnot. So cutting edge while remaining respectful of the Quran and Sunnah, we're definitely coming from the traditionalist paradigm. We respect the Quran and Sunnah, but at the same time, there are questions that cannot simplistically be answered. And for to answer those questions, you need to be willing to break away from the tradition, not break away from the Quran and Sunnah. And again, that's something very unique where I personally had to make a decision um, that I'm not going to use these principles on the Quran itself because this is the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can't do that. Because if you do that, then nothing is left of Iman, you know. So I made a conscious decision that all of these prodding and probing and questioning, it cannot be done to the book of Allah because it is tanzilum min al-aziz al-hakim. It is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I know it is from Allah because my fitrah, because it is simply too beautiful to be a human construct. It's something from Allah. So if it's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then Allah azza wa jal is in charge of it and good enough for me, alhamdulillah. But there are other questions that come. And so we went to those questions and we answered those questions in, in a manner that, alhamdulillah, I'm much more comfortable now than I ever was in my entire life about the difficult questions of al al-Quran. But in order to answer those questions, I had to break away from Suti Zidqan, based myself on Azarkashi and Burhan and all of that, but then move a little bit forward and say, Jazakumullah khair, you guys built the foundation for us. 
but you didn't take into account other things and we have to now formulate a new response. And then a final question, I think, and this is a good place to conclude. What is the responsibility of a Muslim when it comes to when it comes to seeking knowledge? And and the reason I ask this is, for example, if there is if someone says, oh, I, I read in this book that this is what Islam says. First thing this person will say is, who's the author of the book? And you'll say, oh, you know, it's a non-Muslim name or some whatever, if there's a non-Muslim name, whatever that means. And he'll say, oh, this guy's not Muslim. He doesn't know what it means to be Muslim. He doesn't know, you know, all the things that we do. So how can you trust what he's saying? And yet the same individual when it comes to a topic like Christianity or something like this, and someone is telling you, okay, this is the flaw um, in the New Testament, uh, or this is the flaw in, in X, Y, and Z. They'll say, okay, so where'd you read it? And you'll say, oh, I read it from this person. But the, the question doesn't go back. It doesn't say, oh, but this person, he's, I mean, he's an atheist or, you know, he's an agnostic. He may be a, a figure, an important figure in biblical studies and, you know, the, in the study of the New Testament. But still, that same expectation is not there. And so I wonder, even as Muslims, what, what's the expectation we need to have with ourselves as we analyze our own tradition? Do we, and obviously, throughout this interview, we've been kind of pointing out areas of improvement, I should say. Uh, between, uh, you know, different traditions. So I say for the average Muslim, for any Muslim, uh, what is our responsibility when it comes to knowledge about our own faith? So I think here the question that you're asking needs to be um, clarified. Who's asking it and what's the purpose of asking it? The average Muslim is not and should not be interested in issues of a nature that are not going to be a practical benefit to himself or herself. The average Muslim should be interested in the basics of Islam in a manner that will make his life more meaningful, in a manner that will make his life more productive, in a manner that he'll be or she will be able to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at their basic level. Me and you were discussing it for academics. And that's a, a key caveat I need to add. This whole interview, it's really meant because you're coming, your, your, your podcast is a podcast meant for academics, right? Even though Maybe because of me, a lot of people listen that are not from academia. But to be very clear, this entire interview is really meant for advanced students that are flirting between classical Islamic studies and Western, you know, academic training of Islam and wondering the differences between them. Yeah, that's what your podcast is about. So this question that you're asking, if you're asking it on behalf of the average, you know, Muhammad on the street or Fatima and her, you know, in the street or whatnot, for them they should not really be interested in these difficult questions because it's not going to increase their iman. It's not going to make them a better person. But if you're asking about the madrasa student who is very interested in advanced studies and is not satisfied with his own madrasa system, for that student, I will tell them that if they have enough iman and faith and if they have enough of a traditional background training with those two caveats and they're brave enough to be willing to change their mind, then yes, they should not care about the religion of the author. They should not care about the paradigm of the author. Go ahead and study as much as you can. But you have to have enough of a background, both iman-wise and knowledge-wise, to be able to venture into the lion's den. If you're not going to have either of the two, then in that case, definitely it is best that birds of a feather flock together. If you're satisfied with your 
mainstream Deobandi circle, stick with your mainstream Deobandi ulama. If you're satisfied with your Salafi circle, stick with the Salafi ulama. If you're satisfied with your, you know, uh, Ash'ari uh, circle, stick with those ulama, no problem. Don't worry about the others then, and don't criticize the others as well. Let them be, and you'll be happy in your nice little bubble, but recognize that it is your bubble. And recognize that other Muslims have their bubbles, and they're just as happy as they are, as you are in yours, and there's no need to go beyond. The famous the famous statement of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ibn Sirin, uh, that uh, this knowledge is, uh, you know, this knowledge that you're seeking is your religion. So be careful who you study your religion with. It applies to the average Muslim who wants to study their religion to come closer to Allah and his messenger. It does not apply really to the one who wants to study anything and everything to be, to be a better defender of Islam, especially in the modern world. You cannot close your blinders and not study other traditions from people that are not um, uh, Muslim. So that's something that needs to be very clear here. Religious Muslims who are interested in studying Islam for their own personal religiosity, it is definitely best that they stick with their own religious tradition. And they should and they must look at the backgrounds of the preachers and teachers that they are uh, listening to. And in my opinion, as I've said many times in public, any strand of mainstream Islam is inshallah acceptable to the average Muslim. Any strand of mainstream that respects the Quran, wants to follow the Prophet Sunnah, any strand, the average Muslim is not going to be punished by Allah for not knowing the details of the other strands. We should not make sectarianism a big issue. Even non-Sunni strands, we should approach with gentleness and not with sectarian fanaticism, even though I'm not a fan of non-Sunni strands of Islam, right? I, I think they are making some mistakes theologically, but the way that you present it should not be sectarian. Birds of a feather should flock together within mainstream Sunnism. Outside of mainstream Sunnism, if you're able to influence in a gentle manner, influence, otherwise, live and let live. However, academics, trained madrasa students, people who want to go beyond one strand of Islam, they need to be bold enough to break away and to listen and benefit regardless of the background of the person that is writing. But again, with those two conditions and the caveat, the two conditions, they have enough Iman in Allah Azza wa not in their tradition, enough Iman in Allah and respect of the messenger. And number two, they have enough knowledge of the tradition to know something about it. And then the caveat is that they're willing to change their minds. They're willing to walk in and benefit from that, which is worthy to be benefited from, inshallah. Thank you so much, doctor. I I'm sure a huge amount of people will benefit, especially as this the, the rate of Muslims going into academia increases. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will benefit from your advice. Thank you again so much for being a guest today. And with that, salam. Jazakallah.